what I think probably was uh, my first run-in with the issue of pride, of, of having a prideful heart. Uh, I was five. I was in kindergarten, and uh, this is just a devastating story, so prepare yourself. Um, it was my birthday, and I was five, and so in kindergarten at the school that I went to, the birthday person got to wear like a birthday crown. So I was wearing a birthday crown, which is pretty embarrassing, but I was wearing a birthday crown. And I went to a private Christian school, and every week we had a Bible verse quiz to take, a Bible verse test. And in kindergarten, you can't really write it out. At least I don't think, I don't know. But we, we would say it. We would say it out loud to our teacher. And she would just look around the room, and you'd have to do it in front of everybody. So it was a little bit intimidating. But I just remember thinking, oh, when it's my turn, I'm going to nail this. Like, it's my birthday. I'm wearing the birthday crown. Like, this is like the greatest day ever. I'm awesome. I'm going to get the Bible verse right. And my teacher, her name was Mrs. Altizer, got to me and she said, okay, Jacob, what's the verse? And I stood up confidently, said the verse, sat down, nailed that, and she goes, nope, that's wrong. <laughs> I got it wrong. I, I thought I got it right. I got it wrong. I was devastated. My feelings were hurt. Um, and I, I think what I learned that day was a valuable lesson about pride, right? I was, I was really up, like, up high, you know, thinking this is going to be great. Like, I'm so proud that I know this verse. And like, oh, we got the birthday crown. This, everyone's looking at me. This is just so good. Like, all eyes are on me. This is just a good feeling that I had. But it was, it was prideful, right? And I learned that pride was wrong. And I learned that after pride comes destruction, which is in the Bible. After pride, what follows pride is destruction. Now, I'm sure that you have some kind of story that might be a little bit similar. You probably weren't wearing a birthday crown, but some kind of story where you had a run-in with pride and you were humbled because of your pride. I'm sure we could go around the room and maybe everybody would have a, a situation where you can share, like, yeah, that happened to me. I was prideful about this and God humbled me really quick. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about pride. God hates pride. He, he hates it. The Bible says that he opposes the proud. God opposes pride. He hates pride. Judges chapter 9 is where we're at. The story of Abimelech has a lot to say about the issue of pride. So we're actually going to start towards the end of chapter 8. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, so again, just like last time, we're not going to read through every verse. I'm going to summarize it here and there. I'm going to read bits and pieces from it, um, but you'll get the full picture of what's going on in this text. But I want you to open up to Judges chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 33. Well, I think the best place to start when talking about pride and, and how it's a problem is exactly what I just said. It's the fact that God hates it. His word says that pride is an abomination. He hates pride. So it would be wise for everyone to examine their lives tonight and ask God to bring to light any pride that you have in your life. Pride is dangerous. Pride has consequences. So look with me now at Judges chapter 8. Let's look at verse 33. 
We had talked about Gideon last time and the end of his life, and we said that the beginning of his life, he trusted God, and um, well, he was really not trusting him right at first, and then he decided to trust him, and things were good, and he was relying on God's strength, and towards the end of his life, he turned back, he relied on his own strength, and things ended up poorly for Gideon. He made some bad decisions. He led Israel down to down the path of idolatry. We're going to see that pride is the issue here, and pride is the issue with Abimelech and many other people. Let's look at verse 33 of chapter 8. It says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So that's where we're at. Israel is back in a really bad spot. They were really bad off before. Gideon didn't help them. Gideon is dead, and it says they are whoring after false gods. That's how bad it is, that image they are whoring after gods, false gods. So we're going to cover a lot of scripture, like I said, um, and there's the issue of pride. And, and you just need to know, we all need to be on the same page tonight, and you need to understand that you need to avoid all forms of pride. You just need to avoid it. All forms of pride, any selfish ambition, because they will ruin your life. Pride and selfish, selfish ambition will truly destroy your life. I just want to go ahead and give you point number one. Know that your prideful decisions have a lasting impact. I'm putting prideful in parentheses there because, really, you need to know that your decisions in general... They all will have a lasting impact, but we're looking specifically now at pride. So we talked about how Gideon's life finished. He made some bad decisions. He started in a decent place. Things got better. It didn't end well. Israel, they wanted to make him king. They said, would you rule over us? And would your sons and, and, and your, your grandsons, would they rule over us? And he says, no, I will not rule over you. Yahweh, the Lord, will rule over you. But we saw that he made some decisions that kind of show us that he said it. He said the right thing, but he didn't do the right thing. He said, I'm not going to rule over you. But then he told all these people to bring their gold to him. And he melted all the gold and he made an ephod or an ephod, however you want to say it. And this, this chest plate, this, this garment that belongs to the high priest, that God God created this. God implemented this as a part of worship. Gideon took this and put it in a context that it shouldn't have been, and it led Israel down the path of idolatry all over again. Instead, it became a snare to Israel. And then it says that he had 70 sons, multiple wives and 70 sons, right? And that's just a sign of kingship. Kings did that. He had wives, he had concubines, and he had a son with a concubine named Abimelech. And we said that the name Abimelech actually means my father, the king. So why would he name his son that if he wasn't acting as king? 
Right, so his failures at the end of his life, they made a lasting impact. Right? His decisions, like he single-handedly made bad decisions that pushed Israel back over the edge into idolatry, down the path of apostasy. They were looking to him to lead, and he made bad decisions, ungodly, prideful decisions. It says that they immediately hoard after the Baals, giving themselves over to false gods, just completely handing themselves over to it. Giving over to worship of false gods. And it says that they made Baal Bereath their god. Now, Baal, Baal Bereath is not exactly the same as just regular Baal, right? This translates Lord of the Covenant. So, this was this weird merging of Baal worship and the worship of Yahweh. And it's not hard to see how they got there when you think about the ephod that Gideon created. He created this thing, this weird, ungodly merging of two forms of worship, and it led them down this path of worshiping this false god that they created and called Baal Bereath, the Lord of the Covenant. Israel did not remember the Lord their God. We talked about this before. That doesn't mean that they just forgot everything that he had done. They remembered the events. They remembered what happened, but they did not treasure him in their hearts as they should have. They did not worship him any longer. They turned to the false gods. They turned to idols, and they gave themselves over to their sinful desires. And then it says that Israel didn't show love to Gideon and his family. They weren't appreciative that Gideon led them in victory against the Midianites. They were oppressed for so many years. These awful people. And Gideon leads them to victory, but they just forget. They don't respect him and the family any longer, like they should have. Even though he made bad decisions, they should have continued to respect him, but they didn't. So we've got Gideon in a bad place, the leader in a bad place. And Israel's also in a bad place, and it just continues to get worse and worse and worse. You see that Gideon's decisions... His decisions probably rooted in pride. They made a lasting impact on his children. See, chapter 9 starts off by introducing us to Abimelech. Now he's an adult. He's, he's grown up. And he's up to no good. It's not a good thing what he's about to do. So the story here, this chapter, it, it breaks the pattern that was set before it. You're not going to see the pattern of there was oppression, and then God raised up a judge, and all these things we keep seeing. That doesn't happen in this chapter. Because what's going on here is Abimelech is not a judge. He's actually what's called an anti-judge. <laughs> Literally, he, he is the exact opposite of what a judge should be doing. He is bad. Bad news. It's all bad. We thought Israel was bad off before. What you're about to read it is really bad. And this is the longest single story in the book. Chapter 9 is, I think, 56 verses. It's the longest story of one person we have in the book of Judges. And the other difference is that it's not about an external threat. There was no oppression on Israel. This was an internal threat. Israel is oppressing Israel now. They're in political turmoil. An internal threat is happening. So Abimelech, he has a strategy and it's very carefully put together. And his strategy is he's going to take the throne for himself. 
He says, no, I'm, I'm going to be king. My father was king. I'm going to, not any of the 70 other brothers that I have, I will take the throne. And he probably had a chip on his shoulder because, again, his mother was the concubine. Concubines, along, along them, along with their children, they didn't have a claim to the throne like the legitimate children of the kings did. They didn't get any of the wealth. They didn't get any of this. The king would go to the house of the concubine, visit with him and the children, and then he would just leave and come back as he pleased. You see, it's not a God-honoring situation there at all. So Abimelech, maybe he's thinking, I'm going to show them. I'm going I'm to get the throne. It's going to be me. I'm going to rule. I am going to be king. So here's what he does. First, he goes to his mother, the concubine, and he goes to her relatives, and he says, you, you do not want the 70 sons of Gideon ruling over you, do you? You don't want those other guys to be ruling over you. You want me to be ruling over you. First of all, it's going to be better that it's just one person and not 70, but also, I'm your blood, I come from you. I'm your relative. You want me to be ruling, don't you? Coercing her and the relatives to say yes. And they say, yes, of course we do. And he says, okay, now take what I just said to you. Go to the leaders of Shechem, the leaders of the city, and say the same thing. So then they go to the leaders of Shechem. And they say the same thing. You, you don't want them. You, we, we want Abimelech. He is our blood. He's our relative. We want him to rule. And the leaders then, it says, their hearts inclined to follow him. They wanted to follow Abimelech. They wanted Abimelech as king, not any of the other sons of Gideon. So here's what they did. They agreed to finance this, like, this political campaign. And they gave him 70 shekels. This is like 70 pieces of silver. And here's what Abimelech does. I'm telling you, strategy is insane. The dude was not dumb. He takes the pieces of silver and he hires a bunch of hitmen, a bunch of murderers. The Bible calls these men worthless and reckless fellows. And he says, hey, come follow me to my father's household. So he takes these worthless fellows. Remember, how, how much did he pay him? These guys, 70 shekels. How many brothers are there? 70 and he takes these men into the house of his father, and he one by one murders every single one of them. Their life was just worth a piece of silver to him. One by one murders every single one of his brothers. And it, and it says that they killed them on the stone. And this is a terrible perversion of the sacrifices to Yahweh. You see, they would do animal sacrifices to God, and it would be on a stone, right? So let's just assume that the stone was used the same way. If it was used the same way, the only way for this to happen, for these murders to happen, was if the brothers were laid on the stone one by one by one, all the way to 70, and murdered one at a time by these worthless and reckless fellows. Look, you definitely don't want a brother like Abimelech. This was a calculated and brutal act of murder. This was not a quick and unsuspecting ambush. It's brutal. Abimelech is a bad, bad guy. One part, though, of his plan, it didn't, didn't actually go according to plan, 
One of the brothers survived. It says that he hid himself. The youngest brother, the youngest one there was, named Jotham. He wasn't killed, he hid himself. And the author is telling us this, and it's setting up something dramatic. When you read that, you should know, okay, he's not telling me that for no reason. I'm going to keep that in mind, that one of the guys survived. Something dramatic is about to happen with this guy. And then, the leaders of Shechem, they make Abimelech the king. They crown him king, king of Israel. Look, I want you to first see how Gideon's ungodly, his prideful decisions, they really did make a lasting impact on all the people around him, on his children. The pride he lived with at the end of his life, it negatively affected everyone around him. The legacy that he left was not a good one. You understand? He did a lot of good things, certainly. But the legacy that he left, he wasn't remembered in a positive light. In fact, he wasn't really remembered at all. It says they forgot him. They didn't love him. His ungodly actions led Israel into apostasy. And his ungodly actions made an impact on his son, Abimelech. The letter of 2 Peter, Peter's writing it, and he starts off by reminding the Christians he's writing to about how they should be living. He reminds them of all these amazing truths about God and, and His divinity and His majesty. But then he talks about these different these things they should be doing. He says they, they should have faith and virtue and knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection. They should love each other. And he says that they need to be increasing in these qualities. There should be something in their lives that is constantly increasing. And here's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12-15. through 15. He says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So here's what he's saying. I'm going to do my best right now so that when I am dead and gone, you remember the things that God wants you to remember. You remember the things that God commands you to do. You remember what he did for you in the first place, that you should remember these things. He says, that's how I'm going to spend the last days of my life. So that when I am dead, you don't forget. This is the legacy that Peter was wanting to leave to the Christians. And Gideon's legacy was a whole lot different than the one that Peter desired to leave behind. If you're a Christian, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then you need to be determined to live a life defined by these godly qualities. You need to understand that that your decisions, that your actions, your words, the things that you do every single day, they are making an impact on the people around you. Not only the people around you immediately, but as you live your life, as you're getting older, it will make an impact on the generations that come from you, your kids and your grandkids. I know it's hard to think about because of where, where you're at in your phase of life, but that's the truth. That your actions... Your decisions, they will have a lasting impact. 
So just like Peter was determined, you, you need to make every effort so that when you are long gone, the people that you spent time around, the family that you leave behind, you need to make every effort so that they remember good and godly things. That when they think about you and your life, they think about, okay, that, that person in the future is going to be your kids, your grandkids. They're going to think my mom, my grandmother, my dad, my grandfather, they left a, a lasting godly legacy. They, they weren't prideful. They didn't just care about themselves. They didn't do anything that it took to just gain success in this world. They were concerned about making a good impact, a godly impact on the world around them. You see, look, this concept, it's found in the Bible of, of leaving a godly legacy. We just saw it with, with Peter, but this is what Paul says about Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. You understand that? He, he knows his grandmother, and he says, she was godly, and she brought her daughter up in godliness, and they brought you up in godliness. These ladies are making a lasting impact on their children. And as you know, Timothy, right, he made a lasting impact on the people around him, a, a kingdom impact for the kingdom of God. So I hope that you understand. You need to start understanding that the decisions that you're making every day, they're, they're connected. It, they're, they're, not, they're not pointless. Understand? Some kind of ripple effect is being made by what you're doing, what you're saying, how you're acting, how you're treating people. You understand that they, they make a lasting impact. See, this is all happening, right? This whole, this whole thing, this whole issue, this whole debacle about kingship, it's all happening because the Israelites are unfaithful. They're just not faithful to God. They continue to abandon him, to forget him, and to pursue false gods. They're not being obedient. They're not seeking God in anything right now. They've completely forgotten about him. They are only doing what is right in what? Somebody just say it. In their own eyes. There you go. You guys are listening. That's good. So they're not seeking God's will in this. Right? So we've got Jotham. He's the only brother who survived this attack. And now Jotham, he gathers an audience. He goes to a mountain. And he calls the leaders of Shechem to him. And he's going to tell them a fable. He's going to tell them something. And, and this fable will illustrate the, the mistakes that Israel made, the mistakes that the leaders of Shechem made, and where these mistakes will lead. This is what he's going to do. And see, Jotham, his name, it means the Lord is perfect. So we're seeing Abimelech is the anti-judge, and Jotham represents like the godliness here, like the good things here. So these two characters are in contrast to each other, this whole story. So a fable is a short narrative that teaches a moral lesson and it involves animals or plants or inanimate objects speaking and behaving like humans. That's, that's the definition of a fable. So Jotham gets up on, on this mountain. He calls the leaders to himself 
they're probably shocked, by the way, that he's alive because they thought that he was one of the 70 that they killed. And he begins to tell them a fable. And here's pretty much what he says in the fable. He says, hey, the trees, they wanted a king. Trees wanted a king. And so the trees, they go first to the olive tree. And they say, will you reign over us? The olive trees, will you be our king? And the olive tree refuses. Why why would I do that? Why would I leave what I have here? Why why would I leave making uh, olive oil that that is put on kings? Why, Why would I leave that? And they refuse. And then the trees, they go to the fig tree. And they say, will you reign over us? And the fig tree says, and leave the, the delicious fruit? Why, why would I do that? I'm not going to reign over you. They refuse. And then he goes to the vine. The trees go to the vine. Will you reign over us? And the vine says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to leave what I get to do, making this wine, this delicious wine that kings and gods enjoy. I'm not, not leaving. And then the trees go to the bramble. And bramble is a thorn bush. So you can picture how absurd this looks. Just picture this. A tree goes to a thorn bush and says, will you reign over us? And the bramble responds and says, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. Again, this is ridiculous because a thorn bush doesn't give me shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So that's the fable. And then he continues and he gives us an interpretation of the fable. All right, so open up uh, Judges 9 and go to verse, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 16. Here's his interpretation. He says, Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, let's pause. Do you think they acted in good faith and integrity? No. And if you have dealt well with Jerubel, that's Gideon, and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, what did they do to the house of Gideon? Murdered all 70, 69 of them. And he says, For my father fought for you, and risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day, have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech, and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out, oops, and devour Abimelech, right? And uh, it's verse 21, and Jotham ran away and fled and went to Be'er and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. That's his interpretation, right? So he's challenging the integrity of these people who made Abimelech king. He knows that they didn't act in good faith. He knows that. And he wants them to know that he knows that. Challenging their integrity, and he curses them. That's what he did, is he put a curse on these people. So I think it's obvious, but the bramble represents Abimelech. God is using Jotham to show Israel that this entire thing was just wrong. They didn't seek his will for making someone king. They are not following him. They are just doing whatever they think is best. They're just doing what is right in their own eyes. 
their plan, what they want, what they think is best, not what God says is best. Here's point two. Humbly submit to God's plan for your life. Gideon and Abimelech, they're not the only ones in the story that have issues with pride. The leaders of Shechem, Israel, themselves, they have issues with pride. Do they at any point stop and think, hey, this is actually what we want, but what does God want for us? Of course not. Of course they don't do that. They're going to do what is right in their own eyes. They think that they know what's best. They want what they want. They're going to do whatever it takes to get what they want. They want what they think will make them prosperous. They made him king because they thought it was the best thing for them. They want to prosper. And right now they think that Abimelech being king will help them prosper. And so... Like we said, Jotham challenges them to think about if they made this decision in good faith, and we know they did not make this decision in good faith. They were looking out for themselves because they had forgotten God completely. So he points out, hey, if you're not living in submission to God, then this will not end well. If you didn't do this in good faith, then this will not end well for you. I want you to see that pride can very, very quickly lead you down the path that Israel took. You get to the point with your pride where you are only looking out for yourself and what you think is best for you and what you think is going to make you prosper. It's all about you. You get to the point where you are not concerned about what God wants for you anymore, where you're not praying for his will to be done, where you're not going to him and saying, God, what do you want me to do today? What should I do with my life? Where are you leading me? What do you want for me? Because you're so prideful and caught up with what you want and what you think is best that you're just ignoring God in this. Sometimes it can be like you're you're trying to fit a a square peg in a round hole. You know what I mean? Where you just think, this is what I want to do. I'm going to keep trying and trying and trying. And it's not working. But you just don't see that because you're so prideful, you just can't see that God is trying to show you, this is not what I have for you. This is not my will for your life. It's the symptom of pride to, to not see it. A lot of people who struggle with pride, you just you don't know that you're struggling with it. Because you think that you're all good. You're not asking God what he wants for you. You just want what you want for you. So like, I want you to, to think about the plan that you've set for your life. I think every one of us has set a plan and you're trying to abide by this plan, you've got these goals, and you're going forward, and that's good. We need goals. We need a plan. That's good. But how much have you sought God in the planning? And I want you to answer that in your own mind, honestly. I mean, how much have you sought God with the plan that you want for your life? How many times have you said, God, Your will be done. How often do you pray, God, change my desires to match what you want for me because I don't want to take a single step outside of what you want for me. 
You praying that? What about this? How open are you to a change of plan? Are you open to that? What if God clear? What if what if He clearly just says this? That's actually not what I have for you. You need to go do this. Are you open to that? Or are you so set in your ways and what you want that you don't even want to go there? You don't even want to think about that. You don't even want to think that's a possibility because you think you know what's best for you. Have you been so busy trying to force something to happen that you just can't see that it's your pride and that that's not what God actually has for you? Pride says that you know better than God. That's what that means. If you're prideful and you're trying to force your own plan for your life to happen, what you're saying, what you're communicating to God is, I know better than you. My plan is better than yours, so just leave me alone and let me do me. That's not Christ-like. That's not what God desires from us. Pride says that your plan, your desires, are really what's best for you. But here's what God's word says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. If you are so closed off and convinced that your way is the right way, you, you might be a fool. If you haven't come before God and said, God, what, what do you desire for me? I want to submit to what you want me to do, not what I want. You've got to be careful because you might be a fool. So I want you to listen because all of you are at a point in your lives where what, what we're talking about, what, what you're going to do with your life. How many times do you get asked that question? I mean, have you been asked that question at all in the last two weeks? Raise your hand if you've been asked that question. What do you want to do? What do you want to do with your life? Yeah, right? It happens all the time. It gets annoying, I know. But the truth is, you are trying to figure that out. At least you should be trying to figure that out. You, You do not want to make the mistake of trying to force something to work when it is not God's will for your life. You do not want to make the mistake of being so prideful that you're saying, it's all about me, it's all about what I want, and I'm not going to listen to God. You don't want to make that mistake right now. Trust me. Do not waste time doing that. You can waste so much time doing that. So you need to start seriously praying if you're not. Some of you are, and that's great. Keep doing it. But if you're not... You need to be seriously praying that God's will would be carried out in your life. Just go before God and say, God, please help my desires to match with what you desire for me. Pray for God to humble you so that you can submit to his will for your life. Ask for wisdom, ask for discernment. And then when God shows you what he wants you to do, do it gladly. When I was in college at Liberty University, 
there's a guy that came and he, he, he preached a sermon. It was all about missions. This guy had been a missionary for a long time. He's now serving as a, a pastor at a church. Um, and he's pretty much using his time to encourage a room full of 10,000 plus college students to seriously think about, are you doing what God, are you doing what God's will is for you? That's pretty much what his message was about. Or are you trying so desperately to just make something work that is not what God wants for you? So his whole point was, you need to submit to whatever God wills for your life. He wanted everyone in the room to consider that God might be calling them to missions. And if it's not missions, he might be calling you somewhere else that you're not currently set to go. And uh, I'll just be honest, like I was, I was pretty embarrassed to be, uh, I'll, just, I'll just be honest, yeah, I was pretty embarrassed to be a student at that school at that point, because the response that the students gave this preacher, this pastor, was, it was just terrible. They weren't listening to what the, what the guy was saying, and, and they were, do you guys ever remember that app, Yik Yak, I'm talking about? Yeah, it's just a stupid app. But anyways, it was really popular at the time. And you'd go on there, and you could anonymously say things, and Liberty would say, all these kids were saying stuff like, oh, well, I guess if I don't be a missionary, then I can't be a Christian. Oh, I guess I'm going to go to hell if I'm not a missionary. This is what, like, the whole erupted, and people were just saying this ignorant stuff. And all, and all I could think was, like, that's your response, because are you feeling convicted? Like, do you not see this? Like, do you not see your pride and your arrogance here? Like, you might feel convicted and you're trying to tell this guy that, oh, uh, you can't, I can't, yes, I can't, I'm going to go to hell. Like, no, that's so dumb, right? To just, you need to understand that, like, you have to be open and you have to submit to whatever God calls you to do. And if someone telling you that makes you feel like, I don't know, bad or guilty, then like, conviction. I don't know, I hope that made sense. <laughs> but I just want you guys to make sure that you were not being prideful in this area of your life. Make sure that you're not being prideful here. Because Israel was, and it cost them greatly. So after the fable, after the whole treaty thing, uh, Jotham runs away. He's like, okay, I gotta go now. They tried to kill me. They're probably gonna try again. So he takes off. And then the rest of Abimelech's story plays out, and it's a wild ride. It's pretty crazy. So it starts off by saying, he reigned for three years. And so that immediately lets us know, uh-oh, okay. Three years, that's a short time. It hasn't been that long. His demise is coming. We're about to see the end of Abimelech. And so God, he directly intervenes here, and he, he never stopped directly intervening. So we, like, God is still the main character, guys. It's his activity. It's his sovereignty. It's his control. He's the one doing everything, right? So it very clearly says that he intervened, and it says that God sent an evil spirit. And I know that can be really confusing, and I wish we had more time to talk about this. I would love to talk to you about it after, <laughs> but the point is, here's what one commentator says. He says that God gave the devil permission to enter into their minds and hearts. 
however it happened technically, okay, God causes there to be issues between Abimelech and the leaders at Shechem. They had a covenant together, they were agreeing, and now God says, no more agreement. And they turn on each other, and they hate each other. This covenant was broken. And so the leaders, they organize an ambush against Abimelech and his people. And they hide out, and they start ambushing these people as they come, and then the word eventually gets back to Abimelech. And he says, okay, we got to do something about this. But then, out of nowhere, it just changes, and we meet this new character named Gaul, or Gale, G-A-A-L. Uh, we'll say Gaul. Gaul decides that he's going to champion the cause of these rebels, the leaders of Shechem. He's going to be the guy that steps in and leads this rebellion. He's going to be the guy that to lead them. And so he gets up, and he goes to give a speech to the leaders of Shechem, and it says that they put their confidence in him. They are no longer confident in Abimelech, but they're confident in Gaul. And so they throw this huge party. They get completely wasted. They get drunk, and they denounce the reign of Abimelech completely. They denounce him. And, and Gaul says, I would remove Abimelech. You can imagine he's, he's drunk, and he's just denouncing him. And he says, I would remove Abimelech. I would say to him, increase your army and come out. So this dude is riding high. He's, pr- pretty, he's, he's being arrogant here. And he's saying, he's talking a big game. If he was right here, I would say to his face, increase your army and come out. Come fight me. Let's go. There's this guy hanging out named Zebul, who happens to be one of Abimelech's men. He hears what Gaul is saying, and he gets mad. He gets really mad. And so Zebul reports to Abimelech what is happening. And he advises Abimelech. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to set an ambush. They did it to you. You set another one. You ambushed them. And so Abimelech listened, and he sets up his army to get ready to ambush these people. And so it says that Zebul and Gaul are together the next morning when the sun is rising. They're standing up in the middle of all these mountains, and the sun is barely coming up. You know when it's, have you ever like been in a sunrise like that, where it's, it's, the light is coming, but it's still kind of too dark to see anything? You know whenever you, like, your eyes are kind of playing tricks on you a little bit? You're like, oh, what did I just see? Oh, it was nothing. It's a shadow. Oh, something's there. You know what I'm talking about? Well, that's, that's what's going on right here. So Gaul says to Zebul, Look, I see people on that mountain. There are people right there. And Zebul says, no, no, no. Your eyes are just playing tricks. It's just the shadows of the mountain. It's not people. Chill out. And, and then Gaul, okay, he says, okay, whatever. And then a few minutes go by. It's getting a little bit lighter. And he says, look, look you, that's people. There are, there's an army right there, and they're coming. And Zebul delivers the hardest, coldest line in the book of Judges. Here's what he says. Where is your mouth now? You who said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go now and fight with them. Right? Where is your mouth now? You're not talking a big game anymore. Go and fight them. And so he goes, he fights, and he loses. And so this mini episode within this whole narrative, we actually see the point about pride driven home in the life of Gaul. Really quickly, we see the epic highs, and he's all up here, and he's going to conquer everybody, and he's going to win, and he's the greatest. And then destruction, right there, really quickly. His arrogance led to his defeat. All right, well, Abimelech, after that victory, his pride grows even more. 
he's even more greedy and more zealous to, to fight. So he decides, you know what, that wasn't enough. Now I'm going to go back to Shechem and I'm going to slaughter all the innocent people there. And we're going to take over that city. And it says that he divided his army into three groups, which is exactly what Gideon did. He learned something from his dad there. And the people are out of the city. And what he does is he sets one of them at the entrance of the city so they can't get back in. And the other two, they close in. They enclose on all these innocent people that didn't have anything to do with the leaders of Shechem. And he just slaughters them all. Kills them all. Takes over that city. Then he decides that he's going to go to the temple fortress. This is a little bit away from where that gate was. There's some people that got away, and they go to this temple fortress. This is the last line of defense. This is it. This is the last hope that Shechem has. They go into this temple, I'm sorry, this tower. Uh, they lock the door. They all go to the top of the tower. They're hiding out. And Abimelech, he tells his army, hey, come follow me. And they walk away from the tower. He takes an axe chops some trees down, takes the wood, comes up, puts it at the bottom of the tower, and he says, okay, do what I do. Lights it all on fire, and they burn the tower down, and it says that a thousand men and women burned to death. Just like the bramble in the fable predicted. Fire came from the bramble. Abimelech, right, the bramble represents Abimelech. Fire burst from the king and consumed the cedars of Lebanon, the trees they cut down. And the tower burned. And all these people died. So now at this point, you're thinking, okay, you're reading this and you're going, okay, the first part of that fable came true. There's a second part, though. So you should be thinking, is that part going to come true? Abimelech becomes more arrogant, more greedy, and he sets his eyes on the city called Thebes. He says, okay, we're going to go attack Thebes now. We're going we're to go. We're not even going to stop. We're not going to rest. We're going. He's on a rampage right now. So he goes to the city, and what do those people do? They retreat to a tower. His word didn't get to them, which just happened to the tower in Shechem, but they, re- they retreat to a tower. They lock themselves in. And Abimelech, he begins to get wood to burn this tower down too. But right when you expect the tower to burst into flames, something crazy happens. A woman at the top of the tower throws an upper millstone down from the roof. It hits Abimelech in the head, crushes his skull. Doesn't kill him though. You can imagine that was just too terrible. He's alive still, barely. He turns. I want you just to think about how much pride do you have to have to be knocking on death's door. Your skull is crushed. He turns to his armor bearer, who most likely was this young guy, and he says, I need you to take your sword and run me through. Kill me before I die from this injury from the woman because I cannot die from the hands of a woman. I will not go out that way. So the armor bearer listens. He takes a sword, stabs him, and he kills Abimelech. 
But the irony here is we know what happened. God preserved that. We know exactly what happened. We know that the woman threw the upper millstone, which, by the way, upper millstone is this giant circular stone with a hole in the middle, like a big stone donut, probably like 30 or 40 pounds. This woman just chucks it off the roof, hits him in the skull. He's crushed his skull. That's what happened. So the men see that he's dead. And I think this is kind of funny, too. They just return home. They stop. You can just imagine that they're like, oh, we're getting the wood. We're doing this again. Let's go. Bam. (laughs) Out of nowhere, this upper millstone hits him in the head. They all stop. They look at each other. And then they're just like, well, I guess we're going to go home now. (laughs) Like, what, what do we do? It says, the men of Israel departed to his home. In this whole Israelite experiment with kingship, it's done. It's over. This is all over. Here's point number three. Repent of pride before it's too late. Repent of pride before an upper millstone hits you on the head. I'm just kidding. Listen to what God's word says about pride and how dangerous it is. We could go verse after verse after verse, but I've got three verses here. Proverbs 16:5. Everyone who is arrogant in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured. He will not go unpunished. That's heavy. If you have arrogance in your heart, you're an abomination to the Lord, and be assured. This is God's word saying you you can rest assured that you will not go unpunished if you have pride in your heart. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs eleven two, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. And like I said, there's so many more. God's word is clear. It is very, very clear. Pride leads to destruction, downfall, punishment, consequences. You saw it in Gideon's life, Abimelech's life, Gaul's life. So you need to repent of your pride. You need to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God humbles you in a humiliating way. And the thing about that is God would be totally just in your humiliation. So this could mean for you tonight that You need to humbly repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. If that's you, your pride is keeping you from admitting your own sin and confessing that you can't do anything to save yourself and that salvation is only found in Christ. You understand that the pride is one of the reasons why you're not doing that? You need to admit your utter dependence for a Savior. If you do not, your destruction will come, and your destruction will be found in hell. And look, I don't want that for you. And I know that you don't want that for you. So you need to repent tonight and put your trust in Christ. So this could mean also that you are saved, 
but you have an issue with pride. You think too highly of yourself. You look down on others. You never admit when you're wrong. You never confess your mistakes. You think that you're better than everyone else. You would never admit that. You'd never say that out loud, but deep down you actually do think that you're better than others because of your pride. You think that you're operating on your own strength. You think that your ideas are all the best. You think that you are just the best. Look, however pride is manifesting itself in your life, you need to repent. Because if you don't, God will humble you. God opposes the proud. He hates arrogance. He promises to punish arrogance. He promises that you will face consequences for your arrogance. So that could look like a million different things. Most likely it's happened to you before or you've seen it happen to someone else. Where you've seen this proverb, pride goes before destruction. You've seen it happen in real time to someone. I mean, you need to let that be a warning. If you've put your trust in Christ, God expects you to live humbly. To treat others more significant than yourself. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So you need to repent of your pride before it's too late. Abimelech's story, chapter 9, ends with two final verses about the activity of God. Here's what it says in verses 56 and 57. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads... And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubel. So God returned the evil. God's hand was behind their destruction because of their pride, because of their wickedness. The curse came true. You need to understand that God always keeps his word. He's always faithful to his word. And it just so happens that his word says that pride will not go unpunished. So you need to fear God properly. Those last two verses there should cause you, you can write point number four if you want, you need to fear God properly. I don't have a point four, but if I did, that's what I would say. I just want to say a quick thing here about chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Okay, Two minor judges here, Tola and Jair. We don't really know anything about them. Very, very few verses about two judges. We know that Tola uh, saved Israel. That's it. Came after Abimelech and he saved Israel. And this is, this is really its typical behavior of God. Here's what I mean. After something as awful as Abimelech and what Israel is doing, he is still compassionate for and towards his people. We don't have any information on who oppressed Israel at the time. We don't know anything. We, we don't have anything about them crying out. All we have is God sent another judge and he saved Israel. So God continues to be faithful to a faithless people. Then we have Jair. 
And there are some hints of ungodly behavior in his life. They've got 30 sons and lots of stuff, 30 donkeys or camels. I can't remember what it says. What does it say? Uh, 22 years, he had 30 sons, 30 donkeys, 30 cities. He had a lot of stuff. Not exactly the best judge, but the point is, again, that God continues to save his people. Even though they're getting worse and worse and worse, and the judge is getting worse and worse and worse. God's faithfulness towards his people is still there, no matter how unfaithful they become. Right? So you would never want a brother like Abimelech. I hope that if you have brothers, they are nothing like this guy. But you need to make sure that you are not acting like Abimelech. Now, I know that there's lots of differences. You're not murdering people. You're not setting things on fire. At least I certainly hope not. But how prideful are you? Let me just think about that tonight. How prideful are you? And I pray that God will open your eyes to your pride, mine too, all of us. Whatever pride we have in our lives, that tonight God will open our eyes and show us so we can repent and be humble before him. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. Grateful for passages even like this that are, that are just, they're hard. We're grateful that we can open up your word and you have something for us there. So God, help us to, first of all, not ever take your word for granted. Help us to be opening and reading it on our own often. We're grateful for what you teach us, what you show us in your word. Please, God, open our eyes so we can see our pride. Every hint of pride that is in our lives, help us to see it, identify it, and repent of it. Help us to be people that trust you. Not ourselves, not our own strength, nothing like that. Help us to be submitting to you and you alone. Pray that we would glorify you in that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.